Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, sometimes going by Danny these days, and on this podcast we have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer, and I started this podcast a few years ago because I really like learning from and talking to other researchers. Welcome back if you're a returning listener, and welcome if this is your first time. Thanks for downloading, subscribing, listening, all of that good stuff. Today I'm happy to bring you this chat, this conversation with Juliet Davenport. Uh, Juliet is the founder and former CEO of the UK renewable energy company called Good Energy. We discussed her childhood, which included some time at a school where kids were left to follow their own interests. And as part of that, she followed her parents to motor racing tracks for her father's career as a co-driver, which is something that I didn't know anything about until this chat, until this conversation. I'll uh, let her describe what that is in the episode. Juliet is currently going through what she calls a period of transition as she just stepped down from her role as CEO of Good Energy back in May. And we spoke about how you know when to say yes to new opportunities and when to narrow down in a field, uh, be that either in business or research. You know, how do you know when it's time to grow and to expand and take on new possibilities? And when is it time to shed responsibilities and say no thanks to new ones so you can really focus? I think that, I don't know, that takes experience and wisdom, I think. I guess there's no substitute for that. Juliet has a new podcast called Great Green Questions, where she brings together experts and comedians to dig into environmental questions such as, can we shop our way out of the climate crisis? And is being vegan the only way to save the planet? Okay, yeah, so definitely check that out. Thanks so much to Juliet for virtually stopping by on the podcast. I had a really great time chatting, and I uh, hope that you enjoyed it as well. And thanks, as always, to Ella Gilbert, our excellent uh, and excellent co-host. Okay, let's go ahead. Let's get right into this conversation with Juliet Davenport. Here we go. I think it would be it'll be really interesting. I'm really looking forward to this chat because compared to a lot of our guests, you've got a really unique background and a really unique perspective. Um, let me just say, I also love that old desk in your background. That looks like I would love to write Which something. One? Oh, Whether, that one like over the there. Old, yes. Yeah, I must. Admit, I don't sit at it very often. Um, I have a kind of a slightly the one I'm on is actually more like a table which has nothing, no drawers underneath it. Because um, as you can see, I sit on a ball. And so oh, yeah. I quite like moving around. And you can't, interesting, the old-fashioned desk, you have to sit very very straight and very mm. uh, static. And yeah. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but that has all the stuff in it. So I put yeah. all the, you know, all those bits and pieces like pens and cartridges and staplers and all that kind of stuff all goes in that desk yeah yeah it just it just makes me want to sit down and scribble something out some, you know, <laughs> I don't know, yeah it looks old-fashioned enough i want to write a treatise or something you know and, <laughs> on that desk excellent um, yeah so um i guess if you don't mind we could just kind of start at the beginning and yeah. kind of um so tell me a little bit about where you where you grew up um where I grew up. So I, yeah. I recently 
grew up in London. Um, so I was in London till I was about eight, I think. Um, I went to a very progressive school, uh, yeah. which didn't really teach you anything. Uh, they let you, they gave, they gave you a bunch of stuff and let you do whatever you liked. And um, I spent my time counting, interestingly. Uh, I loved numbers. Numbers were the only thing I was remotely interested in. It wasn't mm. remotely interested in spelling or anything else whatsoever. So I remember leaving that school, not actually about the age of seven or eight, not being able to spell my name, which was slightly disadvantaging. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I could count very well at that point. Yeah. I mean, it sounds um, like there's some advantage to that approach, right? Because <laughs> if you let kids follow their interests, they, they can go really deep sometimes and they can get really, really focused yeah. into it. But, uh, yeah. but I, could, I could see the other side of the coin as well. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. I think I think the thing is in our society, we most people think that you should be able to spell and that was quite <laughs> a disadvantage at that point. <laughs> and I still make up words even to this day. So apologies if I make any words up on the podcast. That's valid. We can make up words. So language is evolving and we are allowed to introduce yeah. new words into the vocabulary. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, and then, then we moved to the countryside, actually, very close to Swindon. Um, mm. And I grew up there for the rest of my childhood in in kind of, uh, yeah, kind of rural bliss, I guess. I had We had lots of animals. We had horses, dogs, sheep. D ducks, chickens, rabbits. I can't remember how many else. Everything, possibly, rushing around at home. Swindon has that gigantic uh, roundabout, doesn't it? The roundabout with other That's roundabouts. The magic roundabout. Yeah. Yes. And I did go around it the other day and got it completely wrong again. <laughs> Ended up going off on the <laughs> wrong road. Because you can't, you do get, if you follow a sat nav around it, it can actually take you, you're kind of going, which roundabout am I at now? Because the sat-nav doesn't oh always gosh. stay with you. And yeah. which way am I meant to be going? And unless you know where you're going, it be, can be a little bit confusing. Sounds incredibly yeah. confusing. Oh, so sorry, Ella, you were going to, were you saying something a second ago? I was going to say, what was it like going from, you know, London life to the rural idyll? I, it's a, it's a funny. Uh, all I remember is when we moved house, we didn't have any food in the house and eating cornflakes a lot. Um, <laughs> that doesn't really help you there in terms of what was it like. I mean, I think it was. Um, I mean, London was very uh, sort of most of the time. If we went around outside, we run. Uh, we were in Hyde Park and that that part of London. Um, when we got to the countryside, I guess I used to love running. My other favourite thing at school was uh, playing Kiss Chase. So Kiss Chase and counting were my two favourite things at my school in London. And um, kiss, it, the, the, the running part of Kiss Chase continued in the countryside. There weren't quite so many boys uh, after that, but uh, yeah. Is kiss, <laughs> is kiss Chase what it sounds like? What is that? I've never heard yeah. of that. It does what it says on the tin, right? Yeah, yeah. You chase people and kiss them. <laughs> yeah, I remember hating that game, and I'd be just running away. <laughs> no, but we used to change. So it was the girls would would do one side, and then when the, when that was over, then the boys would chase the girls, and you had to jump on. And um, I was always quite fast, so depending on which way round, I was always quite happy. Mm. <laughs> I guess as long as you can opt out of that game, it's okay. <laughs> like, as long as you like. As long as you it like was completely like... voluntary. It wasn't part of the yeah. school curriculum. Don't put it that way. But there <laughs> okay. was one time where I remember when we played it and um, it, we nobody would come in from the playground. We just carried on. All the teachers were standing on the outside shouting at us. And we just were having <laughs> such a good time. We carried on running around the playground. I think it was the running that was really exciting. That's what yeah. I really enjoyed. 
uh, th- that moment that y- your group of kids just, you know, informed or reinforced to those teachers, like, you know, you're not really in control, right? Like if we wanted to, <laughs> if we wanted to, we could take this thing over. You know? Yeah. There's, we outnumber yeah. you. There's more of us than there are yeah. of you. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it was okay growing up kind of, kind of isolated. Yeah. I gotta say like, yeah. I grew up kind of isolated and found it frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed getting back to a little bit more uh, density personally, yeah. Uh, but but it sounds like it was okay for you. I actually grew up in a very high carbon household, um, which is slightly ironic given even what I've worked in for the last twenty five years. Um, so my father was actually something called a rallying co driver. So he used to do world rally. He rallied the UK. I think he won the RAC rally the year I was born actually. Um, and so a rallying co-driver is a guy who sits in the co-driving seat, doesn't drive. And they essentially have their own language where they describe to the driver what's going to happen on the road ahead so they can drive it as fast as they possibly can. Um, okay. uh, but I spend a lot of time in Welsh forests watching cars at midnight go past and um, on the side of racetracks, a lot of European racetracks, because he also did, um, he ran race teams as a later part of his job. Oh, wow. How about your mom? What, what was she up to? So my mum was an artist by training, um, but she did a bit of rallying when she met my dad as well. Yeah. So she she used to rally with a female rally driver as well. So they were both at it for a bit. Huh. It's like in the family. It's like, yeah, did anybody, yes. do you have siblings? Do you have siblings? Did any, any I have a uh, siblings? sister. I yeah. have a sister. Did, did she take this up or did, did anybody she continue? Actually, she used to write about rallying. So she's a okay. she's a writer and um, communicator. So she did some writing about it. Um, mm. She's now a, sci- a specialist science communicator. Oh wow! Oh, that's cool. What? So I mean, Very you said cool. high carbon. I mean, it is. This is just one car, though. And even though you're driving it a lot, I guess. I mean. Well, is that, I mean, is it, it much higher carbon than other well, it, but it, like, the point is it's it, it I mean the whole point about rallying and and racing at the time was is it was promoting an industry so it was promoting mm. the motor industry and and oh, if you one of the reasons they did it was part of the marketing for motoring so um, if you had a, a world leading rally car then you tend to sell those cars better so the Peugeot 205 okay. I don't know if you remember that car that was that was um the Lancia Integrale there were a bunch of cars that became very famous because of their rallying that then went through and they sold very well to people who just bought cars oh right okay so it kind of is supporting that whole industry and culture yeah, exactly. of exactly. buy a car set carbon on fire put it in the atmosphere <laughs> yes exactly uh, yeah 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 well that's, that's really interesting to to hear about that i honestly didn't know about that so you were counting a lot and then you moved to <laughs> counting in your schooling <laughs> and you moved and continued your, your schooling. And, uh, yeah. what did you end up doing for university or, uh, when you started heading so, in, in that so direction? So at school, I mean, at school, I was, I was a scientist stroke mathematician always was, although I loved history. History was mm. my favorite art subject. Um, and, uh, I then we did physics at Oxford. So, um, and I loved physics. I love physics because, first of all, it had less folders for physics. You don't have to remember as much. Uh, you have to understand mm. stuff, but you don't have to yeah. remember it all. Yeah. Um, and bio- I always remember looking at A-levels and used to look at So biology had about five files. Um, I think maths had about three. Chemistry had about three, three and a half. And physics had two. So I kind of chose it, physics, maths, <laughs> chemistry, by the size of yeah. file, basically. 
So that's the, the number of things you might have to remember, like the number yes. of kind of, I see. And the file contains all the stuff you might study for the exam. Yes. So you can, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and you're you're right. that. Uh, so I, I did physics as well. And that was actually one of the things that appealed to me about it was that <laughs> I didn't have to memorize a bunch of names of things because I'm not good at that. Yeah. Uh, and they're like, okay, I, I, I can think abstractly and I can understand abstract stuff. So let me just give that a shot. <laughs> and yeah. uh, a yeah. lot of climate people have a physics background. Like it's not a, it's, it's, of course, there's many people with many different backgrounds, but you do find a lot of people in uh, oceanography and climate generally have a physics background. Um, I guess it gives you a good foundation for it. So, well, you've got, yeah. I mean, you've got thermodynamics, you've got all the maths of, uh, of, of, um, the equations. I mean, it's it, it's very similar. And I guess my my last year at university, that's when I did atmospheric physics, mm-hmm. um, and that's when I got interested in climate change. Yeah. So, you, any any interesting or notable things from the atmospheric physics in Oxford? So, um, what were the notable things? Uh, well, one of the things that we learned about, which was which was always fascinating, was um, why Michael Fish got his um, his forecast so wrong when he said that there wasn't a hurricane hitting the south of the UK in was it 19, 1987, I think the storm one was wasn't it so the nineteen eighty seven storm that hit the south of the UK uh, Michael Fish came out on national television and somebody rang him up and said there's a massive storm he said don't be silly dear it's not. Um, and of course, there was this massive storm, and it did take out huge numbers of trees. And was very destructive. Um, and I do remember sitting in our physics class, understanding why they got the modelling so wrong, um, and that was fascinating. So um, generally, obviously at the time, they couldn't take that many data points for the um, for the mm-hmm. model for the climate model, uh, not for the climate for the weather model, mm-hmm. and. Um, they normally trusted people on boats to. Uh, they they always they weren't quite sure about temperature, so they took into account they might get the temperature wrong or might get the pressure wrong. But they normally expected people on boats to know where they were, and this particular boat was a hundred miles off course, mm-hmm. and obviously it was it was a hundred miles north of where it thought it was in the Bay of Biscay when it took the temperature point, and they plugged that into the model, and then it completely threw out the forecast. And so for me, that was fascinating. It was like, wow, that's that that's about modeling. It's about data. It's about forecasting. Uh, kind of all the things I've then got involved in over my life. Yeah. Wow, just yeah, one because data they didn't point. have very many data that's points, Ella. That was the point. Wild. So they were. They, yeah. I mean, and that's it. You know, with any climate model, the, the more data you have, uh, the the more the less sensitive it is to one of those data points being wrong. And that was their problem is that they had very few data points coming out of the Bear Biscay. My goodness. Yeah. Just extraordinary, extraordinary sensitivity. Like you're saying, if yeah. they had a lot more data points than missing one or even having one that was wrong, wouldn't have been yeah. quite as big of a deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. So, so, I mean, and that, that's what, that was what was fun is that you, first of all, you began to understand the sensitivity of these models and the complexity as well. And the mm. fact that they didn't model nothing, no model of the future is ever right. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and that's one of the things I think scientists find really difficult to communicate to the wider world, um, that, that models are a guide, they're a learning tool as much as a forecasting tool. Um, and I guess, I, I I knew some of that, but I learned that even more deeply when I was doing that course. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I'm reminded of something. I think I saw it on Twitter. I can't remember. It was in response to someone complaining about, oh, these weather forecasts are never right. And I think it was a, I don't think, I'm not going to mention like an organization, but it was somebody who's in meteorology basically saying like, well, if you know a better way to solve the, you know, three-dimensional Navier-Stokes equation, <laughs> like, please come join us and help yeah. us with that problem. Cause we're doing, <laughs> we're doing a pretty good job, I think. And we're doing the best we can right now. It is yeah. a really, really complex problem. And it's kind of amazing. We can have weather forecasts at all in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, also, I think the UK is particularly complex because we sit next to a massive body of water um, and we have very complex weather systems that clash. I mean, we, we're a place where weather systems fight over the UK, essentially. That's yes, how I see it. I said, set it up as a fight between the north and the south and kind of what happens in the middle. You can feel it. Yeah, war in the sky. You can feel it like when the jet stream shifts. When we're on one side of the jet stream or the other, yeah. you can really—that's a very clear difference uh, for me, for sure. So yeah, I'd be really interested to learn about your transition into the kind of professional world and into yeah. uh, funding, starting a company. That's really interesting, and that's also something that our listeners, most of our listeners, won't really be that familiar with. You know, we got a lot of people who are in science, um, yes. people like like myself who are in research. And I'm sure there's people who've started companies, you know, in the audience, but I think the most, most of us are kind of largely in research. So it'd be really interesting to hear what that transition looks like for you. Yeah. So, so um, one of the things I got a pretty early sense that um, I wasn't going to be an expert in research. Um, I did quite a lot of damage to, well, no, not a lot of damage, a minimal amount of damage to one of the labs in some experiment. Uh, my practical partner and I, I do think actually ran away from the lab at that point because we were interconnected with four other experiments and we managed to blow up everybody else's as well. So oh we did it. And I, and I just thought that was a good tell that this was not, this was not a place I should spend a lot of time. Um, but obviously still passionate, well, passionate about the subject, but also passionate about, okay, climate change is a big issue. Uh, sort of where do I go and um, I think when when I left university uh, we were smack bang in the middle of a bit of a recession so 89 90 um, there weren't a lot of jobs around and trying to and there wasn't really an industry I mean if you said is there a climate change industry or is there an industry trying to solve climate change is there a renewables industry none of that really existed um so I did spend quite a lot of time slightly wandering around existing. Um, mm. I spent some time doing sports PR, uh, which I have to say isn't a natural route to uh, working in the energy sector or, or the climate change sector. Um, mm. I sort of fell into that role. But on, re on looking back, um, incredibly useful to learn how to write a succinct press release and understand mm. how to do decent communications because – I don't know about you guys, but it wasn't part of my degree, any form of communications. Um, and in fact, having done a physics degree, I don't think I actually had to speak for three years <laughs> in reality. I mean, I obviously did speak a lot, but but I didn't have to. Um, and I don't think I had to write much more than a paragraph at any one point. No, no. So, so, so your capability of communicating to the outside world was pretty minimal. Um, and so that early job was actually very, very useful. Um, yeah. and I spent some time teaching. I used to teach maths and physics, which again is very good for presentation skills. Standing up in front of a bunch of 14 year old boys, teaching them maths is mm -hmm. a challenge for anyone. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, so that was, 
that was really good. Um, but I decided to do a degree in economics because what I felt was obviously I had the science side of my degree, uh, but I wanted to understand if you wanted to do something about climate change, you were going to have to, you could either go the scientific route and do the scientific research side and provide evidence and information, or you were going to have to challenge the kind of status quo in terms of the economics um, and how are you going to take our economies from high carbon economies to low carbon economies? Mm -hmm. And so I did a master's um, in economics at Birkbeck in London um, funded that by teaching people physics and maths. Um, oh, right. yeah. And in the middle of that, I did an internship in the European Commission, which was brilliant because I went and worked in their energy policy unit. So I got an overview of energy policy at an EU level, but also at a member state level because they kind of coordinated quite a lot of policies at an EU level. Um, and I worked on international oil and gas treaties, um, climate change treaties, security of supply treaties, renewable investment, innovation. So I got this massive overview of what was going on at a European level. And, and, and at that point, I was so fascinated and so interested that uh, you, you become, uh, you, you, just, you just take in everything. You're a sponge for all of that information. Hmm. Um, and also, I was really lucky. I shared offices with people from Norsk Hydro, some of the Nordic countries, who taught me all about how um, gas fields work and oil pipelines work and electricity networks work. And hmm. so you get that kind of infrastructure network understanding of the overall system as well. Yeah. Um, was, this a, was this a phase of your life where you just saying yes to as many things as you possibly could? It sounds like you were getting involved with just as, as much as you could, could get your hands on. And I'm kind of curious how you found these opportunities too. Well, you just, I mean, we, we shared a room with a bunch of different interns and so we all mm. talked to each other. So it all was right. more about, it was more about, um, yeah. I mean, when I first turned up, they didn't have any work for me. So therefore you had to go and hunt for work. Um, mm. and yeah, I, I kind of went, I had to, <laughs> I had to read all the submissions on security supply, most of which were in French with my dictionary, understanding security <laughs> supply in French. That was fun. Um, but but on the European Energy Charter, which was this kind of it was that was it was at the time when Central and Eastern Europe was sort of trying to Europe was trying to invest in Central and Eastern Europe and make sure uh, those countries could have got through their transition. And oil and gas was seen as a very strategic sort of way into that. Um, so I got to kind of understand the politics, but also the infrastructure and the investment and the financing of that. So it, it, what 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 it gave me was a really amazing overview of international um, geopolitics related to energy, um, which was fascinating. Um, but but I and then then I worked at the European Parliament on carbon taxation. So again, looking at a sort of infrastructure and economic. Um, tool to try and uh, introduce pricing on carbon, which was fascinating, because again, what you learn is that if you if you're a, a purely academic um, economist, then obviously carbon taxation seems like a wonderful idea. You price carbon and it all sorts itself out. Hmm. But when you actually get in the reality of it, you have politics, you've got existing infrastructure, you've got existing economies um you've got a bunch of biases already in the system that completely knock out that kind of theoretical sort of uh sort of um silver bullet and mm. that was that was what was fascinating so i, I had a great time at europe lots of fascinating people i learned a huge amount in one year 
So it sounds like you start to learn about the constraints on the system, like moving yeah. to a to a carbon uh, neutral or carbon free kind of economy isn't as simple as just putting on a carbon price and waiting for things to shift over. Because no. <laughs> you'll have no. a, you could have big shocks in the system if you're not careful. Um, yeah, with yeah. big implications, it sounds like. Um, I'm not enough of a policy expert to drill down on any details there, but that's really really interesting to hear. Um, that kind of on the ground perspective, you know, getting used to that. So somewhere along the way, you you founded this renewable energy company. Yeah. 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 So when I left <laughs> Europe, I then did some consultancy, and part of that was doing some work on the technical potential for renewables across 30 European countries. And I got to travel to most of those countries and find out about what, what was their technical potential, but also what was the political potential and the economic potential. And when I was presenting the findings of that in Greece, um, I met a guy who'd set up an investment fund in Germany. And one of the things that struck me during this piece of work that I'd done, um, one of the conversations that was always left out was what about the end user? What happened to the end user of the energy? So it was always about policy or policymakers or the industry or the technology, but it was never about the people who actually use the power. Hmm. And we basically had that conversation at this um, conference in Greece and um, came away and sort of within a couple of years, he basically funded uh, me to set up a company in the UK uh, hmm. to bring on some people to run that company. So I didn't actually, I founded it, but I didn't actually run it to begin with um, right. because I didn't, I'd never run a company. I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I brought some people on who did. Um, and, um, so that was a, that was a really interesting time. And so that, that all sounded very straightforward and simple. We got a nice German funder, we set up the business, um, and it was all lovely and simple until the German funder went bust. Um, hmm. and at that point, then everything becomes very complicated because you are, you're a business, you've been launched, um, but you don't have economies of scale and you don't, you're not profitable. So suddenly mm. you have to go and find a bunch of other funders. And we, we did, we, we kind of worked together as a management team to try and figure out a way through that. Um, but in the end we ended up splitting up. So part of the management team ran an IT company and I took the green company, um, and actually eventually crowdfunded it, um, mm. because we had customers who loved what we did so much, um, and kept ringing up and said, could they invest? And I went, okay, maybe we should <laughs> let them invest. Um, and that's what we did. And that's that was really, so So Good had a kind of double start. It started its world initially as a part of subsidiary of a, of a European brand and then stood on its own two feet a couple of years later. Oh, my goodness. I'm hearing a lot about the importance of networking, talking to people, and being open to possibilities. I'm, I'm still getting kind of a sense of saying yes to a lot of different things and like, yeah, let's yes. go for it. Yeah. 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 I think in an early stage, the thing is you can plan everything down to the last piece, but as soon as you take that plan out, it doesn't work. It, I mean, no plans ever survive their first encounter. And I think um, what you have to do is it's, I always think of it a bit like, so uh, Jenga, giant Jenga. You must mm -hmm. play that. Do you play guys play that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's you know, stacking, you know, the stacking block game you have the, yes. you know, yeah, yeah. 
And 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 essentially, what you do is in Jenga, what you do is you spend your life sort of pushing different blocks until you find mm. one that will move. And I guess starting up a business is a little bit like that: is that you have the idea, so you've got the tower, and you know that something's going to move, but you don't know which block's going to move. So what you have to do is try lots of the different blocks until you get one to move, and that's what happens when you set up a business. Yeah, I like that analogy. <laughs> Knocking on many doors yeah, until it is, and, and you ha- kind of have to be prepared to be flexible at the beginning because whatever your perfect idea is, actually, if some nobody wants it, then you're going to have to change it. Yeah, on a smaller scale, that yeah might be yeah, perfect for you, exactly. but no one else. <laughs> on a smaller scale, that's kind of how I have picked research projects over the years. Just kind of poke yeah. at them and see: is this going to work? Is this going to work? And if it if yeah. it does look like it's promising, I'll give it a shot. And if not, I'll, you know, abandon it and just leave yeah. it to the wayside. Well, that's um, that's what they call agile these days. Agile oh, is, it, is, is all the, about, that's what it is. I mean, agile is all name. about saying, yeah, you're going to, I'm going to try this. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to try something else. That's what it really means. I'm glad it has a fancy name. I would call it a desperate attempt to survive is what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> it, call, it. I call it, I need a job. <laughs> <laughs> how can i stay employed <laughs> good um yeah so where did you go from there it's uh and you know you're still involved with that the, you mentioned the green aspect of the company so that's still yeah that's still going yes um, yeah no completely so um i mean uh, from there i obviously i became ceo i've run it for 20 years and um yeah i've been through lots of ups and downs and highs and lows but um uh so yeah it's 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 all it was it was an interesting 20 years but yeah. i've decided to step down to kind of spread my wings and see what else i can do um yeah and yeah. i've learned a huge amount during that time i think you have to when you run a company you have no choice yeah so what are you mostly pouring your energy into these days what's what's driving you at the moment so Lots of new technologies, quite interested in. So talking to a new solar piece of tech, talking to a sort of short-term storage tech, um, looking at, interested in seeing how to engage with consumers uh, around sort of consumer-type products, um, consumer protection I'm interested in. And then I sit on Innovate UK. So I'm interested in research and innovation side as well, how that all plays out. So yeah, so I'm doing quite quite a few, just, just figuring out which roles I want to do and how I want to get involved and how deeply I want to get involved. Right. Are there any particular technologies that really excite you about the kind of next uh, well, few I decades? Think, I mean, I think what's interesting is I think a lot of the technologies we kind of already know. I think the excitement for me is going to come in material science, to be honest, mm. is how do we take materials? And then, so if you look at batteries, we've got lithium-ion batteries, or we've got um, we've, we've got a, quite an old technology in a sense, and mm-hmm. it's uh, they're going to use quite a lot of rare metals that are going to be needed. So what research around... Um, materials can we see coming forward that we could um actually look at well what more can we do around recycling what more can we do around because because we 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 don't want to solve one problem and create another so we're going to have to start so we're quite excited about what research might go on that um new methodologies i got asked a question on steel the other day so the concept of green steel 
quite like um, sort of finding out a bit more about how's that going to work and what's that going to look like. I love communicating stories. So in a sense, I'm not quite the same as my sister, but sort of communication of science and taking stories out to the wider public. I love doing that. Uh, so uh, I've got involved in um, some drama scripts around climate change. Uh, so a bit of that as well. So yeah, lots Very of cool. different ideas really. What does your calendar look like? <laughs> right now it is a little busy, um, yeah. but that's partially because I'm in transition. And so mm. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I'm going to be doing. And so what a lot of that is, that you, as you said, Dan, I, I say a lot of yeses at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hoping at some point some of those will turn into things so I don't have to say yes so often in the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it, it can get overwhelming, right? Like that approach, saying yes to so many things. I have in the past found myself spread way too thin as a result of that strategy. So yeah. there, there, and it's not, um, there, there is a point beyond which it's not good for one's mental health. I'm not commenting on your case in particular. I'm just <laughs> saying in general, there is a threshold one can find that yeah. like, oh, this actually isn't good good for me at some point. So yeah. uh, I don't I don't know how to strike that balance appropriately, like how to say yes to enough things to have enough irons in the fire, but still being mindful of your mental health. It's just this constant adjustment, uh, this constant kind of balancing act, I guess. I think it is. I, I mean, I, I think I, I'm sure you guys <laughs> find that if you do things that you like as well, that is important to really figure yeah. out what what in my my key criteria are one I want to work with people I love working with so I enjoy so I enjoy their company I think that's really important mm -hmm. two I want to um make a difference so mm. I'm not so I got offered a job recently which was very well paid and um I could probably do quite straightforwardly but it wasn't it wasn't doing anything it's not going to change the world and mm. that's what I'm interested in doing so yeah so you're very intentional it sounds like you have that kind of overarching strategy which helps you pick you know how yeah which direction which direction you want to go in yeah. I got that advice recently to try to be more kind of intentional and try to picture yourself like what do you want to do in five years ten years it sounds a little bit like a job interview question but actually it is a useful thing to consider like even though you can't predict the future just like roughly where do you think you'd like to be in five or ten years in terms of career and stuff and yeah um, I think you have yeah. to understand what's important to you as well so you mm -hmm. you kind of go what 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 is important to you in your work what what makes you happy um and what what makes you feel that you've you've done something for the wider planet i guess yeah. i mean i think i think those are those are the questions you have to ask yourself um it needs to be consistent with your values is one way i've heard yeah. it put yeah, yeah. figure yeah. out what your values are and try to be consistent with those yeah yeah I just saw Ellen nodding. Do you have any comments on that? Or do you have any thoughts on like balancing, you know, many different projects and many and being intentional about selecting? Oh, the I am the worst <laughs> person to talk to about that. I just have a real big problem with being offered these exciting projects. Yeah. And you're like, yes, I've got a spare one hour every month <laughs> and I can totally do another. I can add another <laughs> job to my list of five. That's fine. That's totally fine. I've got, you know, I only need to sleep two hours a night. That's cool. <laughs> really, uh, yeah. really bad problem. Uh, I need to learn how to say no is the something I would like assistance on from the I think, I think 
Sorry, yeah, sorry go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, one of the other things you can do is come up with your criteria. Have a checklist. Before you say yes, you have to run it through a checklist. It's like, does it make... But what if everything meets the okay, checklist? Okay, well, then you need a better checklist. You need a longer checklist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Maybe that's my problem. My checklist is, is it exciting? Mm -hmm. Yes. Everything's exciting. <laughs> Everything's amazing. Yeah. I'm quite an excitable person. So maybe that's not a problem. What you're doing is very exciting. I mean, the, the, the PhD you did sounds amazing. Mm. It was great. And it is now over. So I, I had more space after that. Yeah. Um, but it's all the, I love doing all the communication stuff. I love talking to people. I love making films about climate and things like that. And it's just, it's so exciting. Yeah. There's so much to do, but it's, it's like that old Sil Sylvia Plath quote. Like I get really sad at thinking all the books I'll never read and all the things I'll never do, but you just have to really enjoy the things yes, you do. Yes, there you go. That's the right. point. <laughs> Instead of trying to do yes. it all. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm still coming to terms with that. <laughs> I can say it as many times as I like, but yeah. actually doing it is another no, thing. No, it's fair. There can be like a weird sense of, I don't know if it's sadness or what, but when you when you feel like you need to narrow your scope in a bit, there is a little bit of a kind of pain associated with narrowing in and focusing in a little bit. And I love the idea of making sure you're really excited about what you are doing, but I think it's okay to acknowledge that you know there might be some sadness in letting go of one direction or the other direction that you think might not be, might not be possible. Um, I've felt that even for small things of like, even um, stepping down from a committee where I liked the people that I was talking to and working with, it was like the right decision strategically in terms of my time usage. Like, Oh, I don't need to spend time on this committee anymore. Um, somebody else can do it. But I was like, sad to say bye to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Completely <laughs> so, get that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's maybe a small example, but I think it's okay to acknowledge that that there might be a little sense of a kind of loss of when you narrow narrow things down. So I've well, I was told we have you for an hour, so that would be like fifteen more minutes. Is that yeah. correct? Is that yeah. you got other? I got okay. So um, I'd like to talk more about what you've learned in different areas of of your life kind of what you've learned along the way so can you just give us little little mini lessons they don't have to be they don't have to be like the best lesson or the best just things that come up um so often we ask people about what they learned about science and you know i right. think uh, you've got an interesting there's other stuff i want to ask you too but why don't we start there like what have you learned about science you know from like go, you can go back to you know being a teenager um, or even being a kid and counting, what's something you've learned about science in your life? Um, that's quite a big question, actually, what have you learned about science? I mean, obviously, I, I've kind of kept in touch with science all the way mm -hmm. through my career. Um, yeah. I think I think what is interesting about science is that science isn't just science. So, so science can be incredibly creative. It can be um, in, incredibly theoretical. So it doesn't just have to, a lot of people put science into a box of being wrong or right. And mm -hmm. that is as far away from me, from, from a lot of science as, as anything. And I think, um, what, what I've learned about science is how few people who aren't scientists or don't get involved in scientists actually really understand what science is about and how it works. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite sad actually, because one, I think science is, is so exciting. Um, and it's, it, it's so creative. People forget how creative science is. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
I feel sad that there's not more people who get involved with it. Um, and and I do I do blame our education system wanting to sort of take people down one path, whether you're an artist or a scientist from the beginning. Mm. Um, oh, right. And some yeah. of our universities putting all the science out on their own science park. I I, th- I I think that's I don't think that helps us as a society. I think science fundamentally underpins everything we do in our modern society. And I worry that we don't understand what it is um, mm. as a society and how to use it. And therefore, yeah, I feel that that's I feel a bit sad about science because it gets cordoned off into a certain proportion of the population and and nobody else bothers to find out about it. So yeah. um I, yeah. yeah, so that, that I don't know whether that answers what you thought the question was, Dan, yeah. but that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, for sure. Really, it's just whatever comes up for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we had a chat with uh, Mika Tuska, who works in Chicago, and she's working at this interface between art and science. So she's yeah. working with with art students, um, not just on kind of communication, but on trying to come up with a you know, a genuine kind of synthesis between the two worlds. And that that was a really uh, she's a really interesting person to talk to who's working in that in that space. Um, yeah, Ella, did you what? have one? Or oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, when when I worked at NERC, so when I was on the Council of the National Natural Environmental Research Council, we did a lot of work on communications. And in fact, that was one of, I think, the breakthroughs for that council was that they actually put money aside to invest in in science um, communication. Because uh, I think particularly science around climate change is has has been hijacked so many times in the public arena of people not knowing whether uh, the, the, the concept of uncertainty and, and people not understanding that, um, mm. that it was so important. So that was incredibly important for me. Hmm. I wonder what have you learned about maybe business? Maybe that's too broad of a topic, but it's a topic that I think, you know, not all of our listeners will be super familiar with. Yeah. I mean, I think business is really interesting. So I think, I think a lot of times, um, I think scientists are very suspicious of business, interestingly, having come across uh, sort of the interface between research and, and business. Um, I think n- not all businesses are the same, number one. Um, I think there is some, there's some really interesting moves in business now to have a higher purpose, um, so for businesses, there's there's two things that I'm involved with. One, we've been looking at B Corp as a kind of accreditation, which allows a business to put its purpose in its articles, which means that um, it, it has to look after its shareholders, but it also has to look after its purpose. So the directors mm-hmm. of that business have to make sure the company is delivering on its purpose. Um, also, I, I've also been working on a piece of research that's been looking at the future of corporation. And a lot of that is about how do you use corporations for good? Because what, what I love about business is that they're this engine. They're in an amazing engine for change and for delivery. Mm-hmm. But if you let them get out of sync with society and that they all they are interested in is creating profit and you don't get that balance between society and business, then they can skew an economy the wrong way Mm -hmm. um and my personal view is that if we could set up businesses that are more purposeful we could have an amazing agent for change in our society yeah absolutely Uh, did you have one ella not to put you on the spot but i just wanted to no i just thought that was really really fascinating i've been thinking more about more and more about the the importance of business for well the client tackling 
climate change because you often hear about governments, you often hear about individuals, but you don't always hear about the role of of business yeah. and yeah. corporations. Like, yeah, I mean, fascinating. Sorry, Dan. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, just briefly, we had um, the Cambridge Center for Climate Science. We had a speaker come over and talk to the kind of community. Uh, the speaker was from. Jaguar Land Rover, and he was specifically uh, kind of one of the um, executives who had to do with uh, environmental sustainability. And, uh, you know, that might sound a bit counterintuitive, right? Jaguar Land Rover and environmental sustainability. They did have an executive, and the executive did come out and talk to us. And I feel like I learned a lot because he basically let us in on the fact that, in his experience, a lot of CEOs are acting on instinct, you know, they have a certain set of instincts that have built up over time in the business world. And often those instincts are quite kind of short-term focused, kind of quarterly focused, or, you know, several quarters kind of focused. And if something hasn't come up as a problem for them before, they might not put a lot of weight on, oh, this could potentially be a problem. Mm -hmm. So there is almost kind of a short-term thinking kind of built into that position. And uh, so it's kind of, which can have bad consequences in the in the long run, um, for the reasons that you were mentioning, you know, Juliet. And uh, but anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. So yeah, that that was really interesting. So I guess uh, what about people? This is uh, what what have you learned about people? That's a that's too big of a question, but just whatever, uh, whatever, really interesting. whatever comes up for you. Whatever I guess, comes up I mean, you. actually, it, it comes very much as a similar answer on the business side that um, I've obviously worked with a lot of people over the years. Lots of people have been part of the success of Good Energy. Um, but one of the things I think I really did learn is that when I was trying to grow the company up, so make it more than just a startup, because mm-hmm. um, when you're a startup, you, you kind of – as a CEO, you make a lot of the decisions, you do a lot of the work, you're kind of integral to everything. And as you grow up, you need to kind of be able to delegate and hand over. And I think I made the mistake of thinking I needed to get people who were experienced in the industry rather than hire first and foremost on purpose. Because I think if you hire good people who are aligned with the purpose of a business, uh, you get a much better result because if you if you end up with people who aren't aligned with the business, then then that is where you run into problems every time. Um, and if they are, then they get it and they all tend to work together in a team in the right way. Um, so that that is what when when we were really successful at Good, a lot of the time was because everybody was pulling in the same direction and understood and believed in the purpose of the business. Uh, that's really interesting. That makes sense. That. You know, you can learn some things about business, even if that's not your first area. But if you yeah. have a strong sense of purpose, then that's that can be your engine. That can drive you forward for sure. Completely. So in the last couple of minutes here, I wonder, could you say a little bit about where you're, you're going? You know, we talked about what you're doing now. Um, you started a new podcast. I wanted to make sure we mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, great, great Green Questions. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Great Green Questions podcast? Yeah, so so one of my beliefs has always been is that um, if we, on the environmental side, we should always try and engage with a wider audience. And sometimes when we're too hardcore environmental, it alienates a lot of people. So the Mm -hmm. whole idea of the Great Green Questions is really to bring one or two, maybe even three experts together, plus a comedian. And the the reason for bringing the comedian in the room is really to represent a wider public 
to to give a view. Normally, they've got some kind of environmental credentials on the podcast as well. And to then set up a question that lots of people are asking. So I think our first one was, uh, can you love cars and, and still be an environmentalist? Then we went in, is the only way to save the planet by being vegan? Uh, and, and so we're not, we're not trying to kind of, we're just trying to unpack some of these questions that can come across quite often as something that people give other people a hard time about. So hmm. if you said, if you go down the local pub and you say you're an environmentalist, but occasionally you have chicken on Fridays, somebody may say, to, oh, well, you can't be an environmentalist because you eat chicken on Fridays. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, the whole podcast is really to ex- explore some of those myths and to sort of embrace and really understand where the, where the key issues are but also ask those deep questions as like, is there a challenge with coal build? What should we do? What, what happens if the whole planet went vegan? And, 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 and it's sort of envisaging some of the questions that, and, and really going into them rather than being just at a surface level. But with, but we do use a sense of humor. Not everybody likes that. So some people feel that it's too serious a subject that we can't use a sense of humor. But my view is that I've always thought that humor is a great way of cutting through um, and engaging with people. And, and the podcast, is pretty popular so i think we've got a nice mixture and to be honest i slightly stole some of the format from the infinite monkey cage which i love oh sure yes i was just gonna say you can't take yourself too seriously no and humor is like one of the best tools ever for communication and if being taking something like environmental or climate change or those kinds of issues too seriously is alienating in itself yeah i mean the thing is it deep down i completely take them seriously of course i do although i was dedicated my life to them but if i spend my time wagging my finger at everybody else and sort of lecturing them then they're not going to listen exactly exactly yeah yeah I'm, i'm with you yeah that makes a lot of sense humor is absolutely a critical part of of the communication story and um really like a good comedian too their perspective can be so important because they're so good at yeah. thinking of oh, things yeah. from like from left field, like just coming at things from a completely new new angle. Or um, like really good ones are actually they're great at getting right to the heart of the tension. Of like, well, yeah. here's the we- here's the weirdness, here's the tension. Yeah, um, yeah no, I, I have a lot of respect for it, for it done done well and done uh, you know with intelligence and kind of sharpness. It can be really impressive to to watch. Um, yeah, Dan, that's yeah. spot on. I mean, that's so. I mean, we have a couple of people. There's a guy called Ikban, uh, Ishan Ikban, uh, who is amazing, and we've got um, a couple of others who just just are brilliant. Uh, Marcus Bridstock. They just come in and they bring, as you said, they bring that wider view, and then they bring it back to the uh, to, to the particular issue. Mm-hmm. By the way, I also approve of you stealing formats from other podcasts. I do that <laughs> all the time. This this format is you know two or three podcasts that I like to kind of smush together, um, and it's actually part of where I got the two hour idea because one of the podcasts I really like is two hours long, and yeah. the, the the host is like, well, people don't really relax until hour two until like you know you get past <laughs> the first hour, and then you feel safe, and then like you really might get a little bit more deeply into things. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody's schedule allows for, you know, the two hour thing, but yeah, um, yeah, I've found that it it does work. Like once you've been chatting an hour, you can kind of relax into it a bit more. Um, But I feel like we got relaxed pretty quickly. I felt like we were all right. I felt like we kind of, you know, got got comfortable pretty quickly. So that, that was really good. Well, I guess we need to let you get out of here on time. I don't know how like, 
if your next thing is starting in less than one minute or if we need to get you out of the door. Um, <laughs> I, I, been... I've, got, I've probably got a little bit of time, but only only a couple of minutes, but yeah. Okay, okay. Ella, you want anything else you wanted to say or ask or highlight here at the end? Nothing especially. It's been really cool to, to hear your experience and what a, an interesting route you've taken. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody, but it was a route, sort of. And I think I think the key thing is not to have a fixed route, is to know where you mm. want to try and get to, and then just every time you come across something, figure your way through it. Um, yeah, what yeah. I do love is that I now seem to be called Careful Emoji. Yeah, yeah, I had noticed that when did at the, the Was that at the beginning? Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can put in your name. How. I, I definitely you... didn't put my name in this careful emoji. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> I'll have to take that away and think what I can do with that. That implies that there are careless <laughs> emojis. If yeah. there's a careful emoji in there, are also careless <laughs> emojis. <laughs> um, oh, and just for the listeners, that probably made no sense. So Juliet's display... <laughs> Juliet's display name is careful emoji, but that was an accident. That was not intentional on her part. That yeah. was just randomly, randomly generated, I think by the <laughs> platform that we're using. So yeah. well, I well, love Juliet, that. thanks so much. This has been a really good chat and uh, this is going to be like a really nice episode to share with everyone. I'm excited to, to get it out there. Dan, Ella, thank you. It's been a joy and I love talking science anytime. Excellent. Amazing. Well, <laughs> have a good, take care and we'll uh, talk to you later. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye, guys. Bye Lovely bye. to know. Bye. bye. There you have it. Our conversation with Juliet Davenport. And her podcast again is Great Green Questions. So, yep, go check that out. Thanks to Ella Gilbert for co hosting. Always very much appreciated. Thanks to Sean Williams Page for editing services. Lillian Blair for audio engineering consultation. And thanks to Chelsea Baker for support. And thanks to you all for listening, downloading, subscribing, leaving reviews and things. All of that is very appreciated and helps the show. Okay, so sometimes at the end of these, I share something a little bit personal, just as a way to say thank you for listening all the way to the end. Yes, I did steal this idea from another podcast. Don't come after me. Don't come at me. So the thing that I wanted to share after, you know, a couple of years basically of thinking about this, reflecting talking with trusted people, I've accepted something. I've accepted that I'm a non-binary person. My gender doesn't really fit into the boxes that it's assigned very neatly and very comfortably. Uh, on a practical level, I don't need much from anybody. Uh, they is a nice comfy pronoun, but I'm okay with any pronouns really. I just want to say thanks to everyone who's been really supportive and who's been really cool because more than anything, I just want to be chill about it and I just want to get on, keep doing what I'm doing. So take care of yourselves. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.